0: Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. In 2011, U.S. troops flew Osama bin Laden's freshly assassinated corpse from a compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. They brought the body almost 1,000 miles away to the USS Carl Vincent in the Arabian Sea. And they did this so that they could prepare his body for a traditional Islamic sea burial ritual and throw it overboard. The U.S. military deep-sixed his body.
1: Wait, wait, what does deep-sixed mean?
0: It means that they made it lost and irretrievable without a grave or a monument to be visited.
1: Okay, fascinating. Also, uh, maybe we should introduce ourselves, Andrew.
0: Welcome to Measure for Measure. We're a little show sizing up our world. I'm your host, Andrew Middleton.
1: And I'm Leah Rechman.
0: And in this show, we'll explore how deeply measurement is a part of how we see just about everything. We love a good chart or graph, but we think measurement is more complex and interesting than the data points. In each episode of the show, we'll look at a different unit of measure as a fundamental grammar of our lives. In our first episode, we'll be exploring the fathom, and more interestingly, what we can't measure with it, the unknown. To deep six a thing is to toss it overboard into water six fathoms deep. That is to say, to toss it in water so deep that nothing thrown into it can be recovered.
1: So probably today we would be able to understand what's happening that deep.
0: Yeah, so Six Fathoms, it's barely the distance across four and a half parking spaces. But for a sailor without sonar, scuba gear, or a submarine, Six Fathoms would have seemed like another planet. Six Fathoms is what separates our world from this other inaccessible place from which nothing returns.
1: Okay, so we're talking about sailors of yesteryear versus scuba divers of today trying to understand the bottom of the seafloor. How were people measuring
0: that? Yeah, so to see how deep the water is, the sailor would cast a heavy lead weight on a rope from the bow ahead of the ship, so that by the time the weight struck the sea floor, for like a fleeting moment while the boat was moving forward, the weight would just be more or less directly under the hull. And then the sailors began the long work of hauling up the dragging, sea-soaked rope, and they'd count out the depth, arm span by arm span. The word fathom comes from the Dutch faeom, meaning embracing arms.
1: Can you explain that a little bit more? Because that's not totally apparent to me.
0: Yeah, sure. So you stretch your arms out like you're extending your full wingspan to, to get you,
1: it. an average sized male.
0: Yeah, who's probably about six feet tall and has an arm span of about six feet long, uh, stretches their arms out to its fullest extent, hold on to both ends of the rope and then pull it into your hands are uh, are, are, are together.
1: So you're basically embracing yourself with the rope every time.
0: Yeah, sort of. You kind of go from like a... Open arms to closed arms, and you're inch worming your way along the entire length of the rope, and that's how you're counting how much rope was paid out, and that's the depth. Okay. So for boats, like icebergs, the real action happens beneath the waterline. A massive cargo ship spending a third day stuck in Egypt's Suez Canal, clogging one of the busiest shipping routes in the world. Rescue crews now say it might take weeks to set it free.
1: I remember when that happened with the Suez Canal. It was, like, all over the news.
0: Yeah, it was a pretty funny news item. The Evergrande, the ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal in 2021, it's going to run aground again the next time it encounters any water less deep than the height of a five-story building.
1: Is that likely?
0: (laughs) Possibly. There's another boat that got stuck in the Chesapeake Bay.
1: For the same reason, because they didn't calculate it right.
0: Well, they had maps that showed where the water was deep, and they drifted away from that region, and they yeah, they they drove the boat into water that was too shallow.
1: Oh, no. Okay.
0: Yeah, you have to resurvey the bay on a pretty regular basis because your channels end up filling up with sediment.
1: Did they use the the lead technique that you were just talking about? They
0: did not. They used GPS. The GPS would tell them their location, and they were pretty sure from the last survey that they did that there's enough water in that location, but uh, that may or may not actually be true. My grandparents had a small liveaboard sailboat in their retirement, and by contrast, you could have floated it in a backyard swimming pool. But the principle's the same no matter what the vessel is. Like, you're at the risk of losing everything, boat and all aboard, water that is shallower than your boat's draft is forbidden to you, and woe to any sailor who discovers it by accident. That sounding lead and lead line, or at least something like them, would have been the most important instruments aboard in most maritime cultures, and probably one of the few devices that any seagoing person, from Polynesia to the Horn of Africa, would recognize. On the Mississippi River of the 19th century, a riverboat pilot would rely on a leadsman to use a sounding lead to ensure that the water was at least two fathoms deep before getting up to speed. That was the minimum for safe travel in the river's channel. And if it was, the leadsman would call up to the pilot, Mark Twain! which was adopted by the most famous riverboat pilot in American history as a punny moniker. Now, the deep isn't always so forbidden. In 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a novel spotlighting a very different obsolete nautical unit, Captain Nemo explains that his submarine lifestyle begins at five fathoms below the surface, specifically because of its inaccessibility. Only there can Nemo escape the grasp of terrestrial civilization.
1: On the surface, there is hunger and fear. Men still exercise unjust laws mere few feet beneath the waves, their rain ceases, their even drowns. Here on the ocean
0: floor is the only independence. Here I am free. That's, uh, that's James Mason being very James Mason, in 1954. Yes, hmm. Now, in the 1954 movie that we just had a clip from, they changed Fathom to feet for American audiences. But trust me, in French, it's... Them. By the time I was invited to board my grandparents' sailboat as a kid, my grandfather's seagoing days in the merchant Marines were long, long gone. But his love for nautical lore and ephemera was strong as ever.
1: That seems very uh, on brand for both what I know about your grandfather and also for a former merchant marine.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like, I remember my grandfather proudly showing me his sounding lead. It's this relic of a bygone era of sailing. First of all, it wasn't lead. It was brass and it was heavy like a barbell. I guess that's really the only thing that's really important about a sounding lead. It just needs to be heavy. And it was cylindrical with scalloped edges that made it look like an enormous churro with kind of this thumb-sized concavity in the bottom, like this little hole, and you would have stuffed that hole with beeswax, but my grandfather assured me that you could use peanut butter in a jiff. Once loaded, you tied a rope to the lead, and you tossed it overboard to see how deep the water was. When you pulled it up, you checked to see whether the peanut butter had sand or mud or gravel stuck to it, and that way the skipper knows whether an anchor would find purchase on the, on the seafloor.
1: So this is like a giant, basically double-sided piece of tape, that's weighted that you throw to the bottom so that you can tell, like, the texture.
0: Yeah, so if you toss your sounding lead over and there are no little bits and pieces on it, it means that you probably hit, like, solid rock. And if you drop an anchor on solid rock, it's just going to scrape across it, and it's right. not going to keep a keep a good hold. You need the right material for the right anchor. If you've got one of those, like, the kind that you see on, like, an old-timey tattoo. Like, that's a classic ship anchor, and that's really good, and those, and those those hooky bits have have sort of like a shovel tip, and those would dig into the bottom. And if the bottom is so hard that you can't dig into it, that type of anchor isn't really going to work.
1: Your grandparents weren't actually
0: using the sounding lead? My grandparents were old. They weren't throwing around lead weights all over into the ocean. They were more on the GPS side? <laughs> yeah. I can't remember that piece of brass, like, crusted with salt or flaked with seaweed or corrosion. Like, it was pristine. And it was just way too awkward and valuable a gadget to actually use. And I think it was just a piece of sailing history that my grandparents appreciated for its historical significance, and its historical significance alone. I think it was just an old man's action figure to atone for nylon sails in a fiberglass hull. Maybe my grandparents carried around that brass device to remind themselves what seafaring people were willing to do to measure and understand lest their gratitude for modern technology fade under the glow of a handheld GPS unit and radio. When so much information is only a click away, It's humbling to be reminded of the individual cost of retrieving just one single data point. Mapmakers historically made maps in two dimensions and labeled the unknowable tracts with here be dragons. But sailors, on the other hand, marked the unknown third dimension, the bottomless deep, with the word unfathomable. Where the sea is measurable, it is safer and more reliable. It's a devil you know. That seemingly bottomless depth makes the sea a perfect hiding place. The world beyond measure, the unfathomable deep is dangerous and beyond comprehension, making a burial at sea into a send-off to the great beyond in more ways than one. And it was a truly eerie and mysterious thing that sailors were trying to understand by using a sounding lead. Measure for Measure is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Measure for Measure is executive produced by Leah Rectman, created by Andrew Middleton, and sound engineered by Greg Friedel. Our music is by Siraj Sindhu and Mackenzie Kugel thanks to Zachary Davis from The Depths of Our Hearts for fathoming this show with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can learn more on our website ministryofideas.org slash measure or find us on Twitter at measure4m and Instagram at measure4measurepod. That's with the number four. You can also email us at measure4measurepod at gmail.com That's measure4measure with the number four. Thanks for listening. See you next time.